The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm Thomas Nagley. I'm here with Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. And he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you this evening? Just fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Just the same, Father. Good. Good to see you, as always. Yes, Father. Uh, Father, as usual, any prayer requests to begin the program? Oh, today? always, Tom. There are so many. It's impossible to name all, you know, but... Uh... There's some who are, I know are particularly in need. Uh, please pray for Janelle Unfried. Uh, pray for Pat Tootie, you know, our organist in uh, Parma, Ohio, Cleveland area. Uh, Pat is very ill with cancer. And so uh, I ask your prayers for her and her husband, Jim. Uh, of course, please continue praying for Paul Riley and his family. And uh, also for Cheryl Johnson. Please keep uh, Cheryl in your prayers. She's making progress. Uh, but it's slow, uh, it's like uh, uh, two steps forward, one step backwards, but hopefully she will come through it and uh, be good as new in no time. Uh, also for Priscilla Sejarto, I heard that Mrs. Sejarto has been taken to the emergency room just uh, this evening. So please keep Mrs. Sejarto in your prayers. And uh, there are so many other good souls we know who uh, you know need our prayers, benefit from them. Uh, Nancy and Lori Nelson send their gratitude for all the prayers that have been offered for them. They've made good progress, and they say they they don't think that they really are uh, in the condition to be on the list right now. So, uh, but they certainly appreciate the prayers you've offered for them because they really have benefited greatly from them. But please continue to pray for their cousin, Monsignor Handworker, who is quite ill, and um, pray for our country. Our country is in serious danger. Please pray for the church itself and uh, ask God to have mercy on us all. You know, the the traditional liturgy uh, has a uh, continual remembrance of the uh, of the church's need for prayer. There's a beautiful uh, oration that is recurring in the in the sacred liturgy, praying for the church, praying for the church. So. Um, we, we need to uh, keep the need for those prayers in our minds, too, you know, going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, our Lord said to Peter one day, uh, Peter, Satan has desired to, ha- to, to have you, to have control over you, like to sift you as wheat, he said, to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. Our Lord said that. 
uh, that uh, your faith may not fail you. Right? And so uh, we need to pray with our Lord for that. Join our prayers with our Lords for that. Um, by the way, Tom, this might be a good, uh, good time also to mention uh, here at Immaculate Conception, we have the annual Christmas appeal going on. And uh, we always ask people to pray for the church and uh, the church universal, but also for, you know, the church that they attend and its people. And uh, part of the effort to sustain that church and uh, make it flourish is this Christmas appeal we have every year. It's actually 25 to 30 percent of our entire operating budget. It's just this one, this one uh, fundraiser, which is so important. We've set a goal of $300,000 this year. In the past years, uh, they have exceeded that goal by somewhat. Uh, when we set the goal, it's like a baseline goal, right? This is we budgeted that we know we're going to need every one of those dollars to get by. So even if uh, there's some something over and above that, uh, it's still needed. Okay. Um, there's no no luxury here. There are always expenses coming up. So if anybody is willing to help out and have a, have a part in this uh, restoration and uh, continue, well, ongoing restoration of the church, right? And also the school effort here, we'd certainly appreciate your help. So um, we also have uh, some pictures relative to the uh, Christmas appeal. And so hopefully people will find that of interest as well. Mm -hmm. And anyone who wanted to donate, Father, could, uh, could, they could contact us for the necessary information, but I believe also on the uh, ICA Ohio website, they can uh, yes, find the, the information. Yes, the ICIA Ohio.org website, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Is it EDU? I... <laughs> anyway. We can post that information. We'll post that information for you. Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, but yes, um, it certainly um, is possible and, and necessary. Mm -hmm. We have some great projects going on right now, too, so we don't have any dollars to spare. Um, we have to replace the HVA system for the church, uh, not just repair it. We've been repairing it and putting Band-Aids on it for so long. I think we could have bought an entire new system over the last 20 years. Um, but it's time to, to buy a new system because the system we have here is ancient of days. Uh, but also um, there are various other projects, uh, replacement of the, just the back steps leading up to the school, you know. Again, that's a safety issue. So um, these, these things all cost, and these things, days everything costs, you know. More so, all the help is needed and appreciated. So, mm -hmm. God bless you for it. Yes, Father. Another way that uh, people could help out is through our What Catholics Believe Etsy shop. We've um, mm -hmm. we've um, had some great success on there. I think some great traditional Catholic products on there between our um, our What Catholics Believe mugs, but we also have uh, recently added the uh, 2024 Roman Catholic calendars to mm -hmm. the Etsy uh, website. The what. Etsy store, and they've been been very popular. We've already sold a, a great number of those. So um, any of our, our viewers who would be interested in that can um, can check out our, our Etsy website. They can see that on our website. Well, the uh, 2024 calendars are going so well, Father. Uh, Skerke tells me he's having trouble keeping up with the demand, uh, which okay. is uh, a nice problem to have, yeah. right? So I'm glad there's so much interest to follow the traditional <laughs> Catholic liturgical year. Yes. And, um, and the rosaries, too. 
the rosaries. Too. Beautiful rosaries, handmade rosaries, and yep. guaranteed for life that if they, they break, send them back, and they will be repaired okay, in the order, repaired, replaced. So very good. Okay, well, finally, we had uh, several different uh, topics we wanted to discuss tonight. One, though, uh, just wanted to mention in our uh, our most recent video from last week, we uh, we just uh, spent some time talking about Francis and his um his his uh speech i guess that he had prepared for some uh un climate conference and we had uh didn't spend too much time on this this issue of francis in regards to, to climate change and fossil fuels and all of that but um mm -hmm. in response to that to that uh video father youtube was kind enough to place a uh a, i guess they they call it a topical context uh information banner on mm -hmm. our video they um Plastered that on, on our on our video, and this isn't the first time. People who went that, online and went to our site could actually see that. Mm. That they put some kind of a a, a window within our, our image video. there, right. uh, trying to lure people to their propaganda. Right? Mm -hmm. They say that they they place these information banners on uh, when topics are discussed that are prone to misinformation. So I think oh, they're going to climate, climate change was the big uh, tip off. There. That was the trigger there. Okay. Prone so to people people uh, see that if they go to the site, our site, and they see this kind of window lurking there. Maybe blotting out some of the image, even of Our Lady and the child. Mm -hmm. um, that this is a propaganda uh, ploy that they don't like what we're saying, and they want uh, to uh, register their their objection by by. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, this was pointed out to me for the first time this past week, and um, I did go. I did actually do that. I, I went through the rabbit hole of their little um, um, screen, what do, you, what do you call it, information Information banner, panel. Panner yeah. or whatever, and uh, it, it, it went from page to page to page to page to page of this bombastic propaganda, you know. They just can't leave it, you alone, you know. They have to uh, prevent you from having your say. If they, if they don't block you entirely, they use your platform in order to blather their their uh, malicious and uh, and uh, misleading propaganda right? yeah. and tell you that this is somehow offsetting uh, misinformation, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, who was it? Al Gore. Al, Al Gore, right? Just came out and said, the real danger is that people are able to get a message that doesn't come from us. Basically, that's what he said. He said, any message that doesn't come from us, the people should not be able to have because it's dangerous. Yeah. Um, so this is what the uh, totalitarians, this is what all the all the tyrants and dictators and totalitarians of history have said. So uh, I guess uh, we know who these people are. Mm. Well, it's not not the first time it's happened to our videos, Father. I'm sure sure it won't be the last, but um, mm -hmm. maybe one uh, one thing that, that might be of help, we've mentioned this several times, but if viewers actually like our videos and share them and and spread them around hopefully that can uh serve to uh kind of overcome some of the uh parent suppression i, think. I wonder if so. our viewers realize that they, there is a place there on the screen when they're watching the video they can they can click a like or a mm -hmm. thumbs up or uh, even on rumble they can click a rumble, a rumble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to uh show approval that they like it and every time they do that what is the effect of that I think it makes the video more prominent. It feeds into the uh, algorithms more. I think it makes it more popular, more visible, seen by more. More eyes. visible, more yeah. accessible to people. Yeah. So, so if people will do that, 
if they'll subscribe and they will like or rumble or whatever, mm -hmm. it helps, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It makes the uh, video more prominent. Yes. So that's that. Well, we need that help. Okay. Yes. We like people not just to uh, watch the program and like it themselves, but we'd like to express that right there on the screen and hopefully boost the program that way too. That's right. Very good. That would be a good thing, Tom. You know, I noticed <clears throat> something else peculiar going on is uh, the, the, the tremendous difference from week to week in the number of viewers. And that doesn't, it doesn't seem natural to me. Yeah. For example, uh, you know, Rumble has a lot of lascivious stuff on it, right? So Obviously, there are drawbacks to this. You know, we don't want people to going to the lasciviousness of it all. But for example, um, until a few weeks ago, we might have had oh, you know, uh, seven hundred, eight hundred views in the first day, first twenty-four hours after posting the video, and uh, then the next week, you know, it might take the entire week to get seven or eight hundred views mm -hmm. uh, for the entire week. And you think, now wait a minute. There's a, 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 it's gone from uh, like a, to a 10% of the previous week's yeah. uh, viewership. Uh, the, the previous week was basically a thousand percent more viewers than, and uh, then, but, but it's not just all one way because then a couple of weeks from now, it could be back up, back up to, you know, it's like into, the, into the thousands again, yeah. you know, so uh, it's strange. You know, you wonder what's going on behind the scenes here. Yeah. Um, but I mean, this is the media these days, right? Media, the antisocial media and so on. We just have to ride the waves there, I guess. Yeah. We just want to get the word out, get the message out here. Yeah. Of what Catholics believe. That's right. You just keep plugging away, right? By the grace right. of God. Well, uh, Father, a couple topics we wanted to uh, mention tonight. One, um, I think maybe the most most striking one is one to mention was this uh, Novus Ordo Cardinal Walton Gregory. I think at some recent, mm -hmm. um, I think it was Catholic University, Catholic University, some recent, I think just Q and A session that they had with him there. Uh, one of the the students um, at this at Catholic <laughs> University asked uh, this Novus Ordo Cardinal Walton Gregory about uh, the accessibility of the he called it the traditional Latin Mass. Um, he asked why you know that that wasn't as as widespread why that wasn't available to the students on campus this uh this Nova sort of catholic student said that many of his friends often come to him in fact i think he said this is the most common question that he gets is why is the traditional latin mass not available to us why mm. can we not access this and uh so this student asked cardinal Nova sort of Car cardinal gregory what how he can uh, answer that mm. and uh there was kind of a long-winded <laughs> answer that this uh Another sort of cardinal gave, but he in there had a, uh, a quote, Father, where he, he said that tradition sometimes dies a slow, sometimes bloody death. Mm. And uh, many Catholic websites caught on to that and mm. um, were, were reprinting that and uh, just found that very striking that he would say something like that. So what, what was your uh, thought in hearing that? The choice of words are uh, interesting, and I think no accident. Um, they um, seem to imply violence. Uh, that if uh, people will not give up the traditional Latin Mass um, gradually by attrition, they will be made to. And, uh, you know, the, the, the bloody death of tradition is, uh, I think, a, a threat. 
Coming from a, a person like that, I mean, he's the uh, Novus Ordo, the New Order, Archbishop of Washington, D.C., made so by Francis, uh, replacing Worrell and uh, that ilk. Um, there are all kinds of uh, questions about his orientation, um, and uh, but, but he would be one of many of Francis's uh, ecclesiastical creatures who uh, who fall into that questionable category, right? Uh, as Francis tries to transform his, uh, uh, create his his uh, synodal church, right? Uh, we might even talk about the transhuman church, you know, because uh, that's where it's all leading. But uh, in any case, um, you, you mentioned he gave a long, long drawn out answer. It was a long drawn out non-answer. Yeah, you know? never really addressed uh, what the individual was saying. He said that uh, basically Francis did make some provision that the traditional mass could be allowed under some very controlled circumstances temporarily. Okay, The objective is, according to uh, uh, Gregory, Wilton Gregory, that it ultimately be completely annihilated. Yeah. And uh, again, the expression he used, slow death, sometimes bloody death, okay? Um, this um, actually coincides with uh, interesting uh, targeting of traditional Catholic chapels by the FBI. Now, you know that the FBI Richmond Field Office sent out a memo uh, telling its agents throughout the country to... Uh, to watch traditional Catholic parishes, surveil them, because they could be like uh, attract these tread terrorists, whatever they they're trying to say. And um, you know, in the old days, a politician used to used to rail against the conservative uh, Protestant uh, fundamentalist Protestants. They've left all that behind now. Now they're zeroing in on the traditional Catholics. Anybody who still adheres to the traditional mass. They've zeroed out on this because they understand that the traditional mass stands against everything that they are trying to accomplish. Uh, it represents everything they're trying to destroy, right? And um, those who adhere to it have an adherence, a, a faith to, um, well, uh, that, that they cannot tolerate, that they cannot tolerate in the... Um, in their woke world that they're trying to create here, this transhuman world. Um, it's, it's interesting, too, though, that uh, there have recently been a number of videos and conferences that have come out that stress that, that Francis himself has to try to eradicate certain things um, from the minds of Catholic people in order to move forward with this synodal church. They, and uh, there was recently a is a conference entitled, Is the Pope Catholic? You, you heard about that, I suppose. Liz Yor of um, the uh, LifeSite News uh, was on there. Um, and uh, Cardinal Archbishop of Vigano also. And Burkhardt was on there. I, is it uh, Barnhart? Barnhart was on there. Barnhart. And a number of others, too. And they were all raising that question. But the uh, the theme seemed to come down to the fact that Francis has to eliminate certain things uh, from the minds of Catholics, notably doctrine, the idea of doctrine. 
has to go. And um, so, but I think every one of those who spoke there, including Archbishop Vigano, spoke uh, uh, very boldly about the fact that Francis is not a Catholic. And uh, that that, uh, well, at least with Vigano, raises the question of whether he can be the Pope. I think Vigano says no. But I think the others all came down very firmly saying he cannot possibly be the Roman Pontiff because he, he's not a member of the Church if he doesn't have the faith, professedly so. And Tom, if I may read, some, someone told me this past weekend that uh, I need to give a little more explanation about something that we've been saying here uh, the last few weeks, that Francis not only is not a Catholic, but he actually is an identifiable, certifiable neo-pagan, right? And so I was told people need to know what neo-paganism is so that they can understand what it means to say that Francis actually professes neo-paganism, preaches it, propagates it, it is the religion uh, that he wants to um, actually be, it, he wants that to be the faith of his new synodal church. And so um, I actually went to a, uh, a neo-pagan site to say, what are they saying? Okay. And it actually has to do with a, a book published to explain what neo-paganism is. Um, and uh, I thought it would be very good to, to read this, if you don't mind. It uh, might seem long. It's not that long on the page. But as I read this, I think you can hear the voice of Francis. In fact, if I didn't tell you what I was reading, and I just read it out loud, people might have thought, if they had been paying attention in the past, they might have thought, well, I'm, I'm describing Francis. Maybe Francis wrote that. Okay. But he didn't. Okay, this is, this is what they say neo-paganism stands for. And if you follow uh, Francis, especially in his, in his uh, you know, this, this climate change business that he's uh, promoting here, I wish we could find another term for it, right? Because the, the, they go right for it, and they brand it, and they tag it, right? Misinformation. There's misinformation there. They have these, uh, these, these uh, missiles that they launch to attack that. But anyway, what is neo-paganism? Neo-paganism is a new religious movement that began in the United States in the 1960s. Doesn't mean it was started in the United States in the 60s, but in the United States it began here in the 60s, okay? It actually precedes its coming to the States. It says it has literary roots going back to the mid-19th century Europe as attempts to revive what their founders thought were the best aspects of ancient pagan ways, blended with modern humanistic and pluralistic ideas, while consciously striving to eliminate certain elements of traditional Western monotheism, including dualistic thinking and sexual puritanism. The distinguishing characteristics of neo-paganism include a perception of divinity as imminent as within, a multiplicity of deities, both feminine and masculine, a commitment to environmental responsibility, 
and a creative approach to ritual. Religious studies scholars Robert Elwood and Harry Parton gave the following description of neo-paganism in their 1987 survey of religious and spiritual groups in modern America. The unifying theme among the diverse neo-pagan traditions is the ecology of one's relation to nature and to the various parts of oneself. As neo-pagans understand it, the Judeo-Christian tradition teaches that the human intellectual will is to have dominion over the world and over the unruly lesser parts of the human psyche, as it is in turn, as it in turn is to be subordinate to the one God and his will. The neo-pagans hold that, on the contrary, we must cooperate with nature and its deep forces on a basis of reverence and exchange. Of the parts of humankind, the imagination should be first among equals, for humankind, true glory, is not in what they command, but in what they see. What wonders they see of nature, and of themselves they leave untouched, save to glorify and to celebrate the wonders of nature. What neo-pagans seek is a new cosmic religion, oriented to the tides not of history, but of nature. The four directions, the seasons, the path of the sun, and of the timeless configuration of the psyche. They seek not that morality which comes from imposing the will on reluctant flesh, nor the mystical trance that is the fruit of asceticism, but the expansiveness of spirit that comes from allowing nature and right to lower the gates, confining the civilized imagination. For them, this is the spirit called up by the names pagan and polytheism. Neo-pagans seek to restore a proper balance between masculine and feminine symbolizations of the sacred. They seek to recover a sense of wonder and respect as religious feelings toward nature in all its moods and toward the human body and psyche. Thus they want to find a new totality, perhaps in reaction to a schizophrenic culture. They look for it in a new cosmic religion that vehemently rejects the religious value of history while it radically affirms the religious value of raising the level of consciousness through stimulation of the imagination by ritually creating a suggestive and sacred milieu. Now, I want to add to that, actually, another uh, statement about this, okay? There's more on this neo-pagan website that is uh, relevant to what we're saying here. But uh, everything about this, everything about this actually corresponds to Francis and Francis's worldview. If you study it, I know there are a lot of words there, but if one looks at it very carefully, one can see, again, the roots of Francis's theology, so to speak. Pagans in a modern world. What is neo-paganism? 
Modern paganism, known also as neo-paganism or contemporary paganism, is a movement, a group of religions, spiritual traditions, centered on the reverence of nature. Modern paganism borrows and adapts practices from ancient pagan beliefs, along with contemporary religious thought. It may be said that modern paganism utilizes ancient wisdom to address the needs and concern of the present. Perfect description of Francis. The word pagan is derived from Latin and may be translated to mean a country dweller. This term was first used during the early Christian period to describe those who had yet to embrace Christianity. It was used as a derogatory term to separate believers in the Christian God from unbelievers. One modern view of paganism is that it is the ancestral religion of the whole of humanity. And whilst it is an ancient religion, it remains active in the modern world. There are various groups that come under the banner of modern paganism, including Druidism, Shamanism, and Wicca. Nevertheless, adherents of these different groups may be said to share certain similarities. For example, generally speaking, modern paganism can be described as a movement that is not dogmatic or based on rigid doctrines. Sound familiar? Instead, the faith of its followers is rooted in their personal experience. Sound familiar? This is exactly what modernism is. This is the very definition of modernist faith. Okay? And Francis is the, sad to say, the poster child for that. And so uh, I say, you know, if one were to examine the tenets, um, the rather airy tenets of neo-paganism, one would actually find a very, very fitting description of Francis. What he's not only saying, but doing. He's actually, they talk about summoning spirits from the four winds here. He was in Canada doing exactly that in an indigenous, meaning pagan ceremony. But he says, it says indigenous understand pagan. That's what he's saying, really. And he takes part in these ceremonies, these rituals, and he promotes them, even in St. Peter's Basilica itself. Yeah, yeah. so much of that, Father, um, I think anyone who's, who's read Pashendi or heard you talk about Pashendi in the past from St. Pius X, uh, so many of those terms, phrases, uh, words in there, I think, uh, just, just called to mind exactly uh, St. Pius X's description of modernism, which Francis, as you've said, he perfectly, yeah. perfectly embodies that. But he is the modernist chief right now. Yeah. I think it's also uh, just the the way they describe it, their father. It seems like uh, it just it seems easy to see how that could um, eventually lead to the the some kind of one world religion where all of these kind mm. of experiences all kind of coalesce eventually. Well, they and, say it's uh, the ancestral religion of humanity. Yes, yeah, interesting. <clears throat> that they're trying to restore now. So. Yeah. Interesting. The ancestral religion of humanity was defined by Eve when she bit forbidden fruit oh. with a promise from Lucifer that she would be her own god, right? Mm-hmm. That's the ancestral religion of humanity, yeah. Gnosticism. And again, that takes us back to what Torre Gotti-Tedeschi, the former head of the Vatican Bank, described as the new religion of the Vatican. Again, environmental Gnosticism, environmentalism, having to do with the earth, Mother Earth, right, ecology, yeah. and Gnosticism, 
that God is imminently present within the earth yeah. and within us. Wow. Okay. Yeah, this is where the new religion is going. Yeah. This is where Francis is trying to lead everyone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the trouble is, he says that everybody's faith experience is valuable except traditional Catholics. That's the one faith experience that cannot be tolerated. Yeah. Well, Father, we, um, we had a viewer question I wanted to, uh, to read to you, get your response to this. Um, a viewer wrote in and said that recently Archbishop Vigano has announced that he would like to open a seminary to counteract the Vatican II errors. This viewer says, I find it curious that he is attempting to do what Archbishop Lefebvre already did. So why is Archbishop Vigano not reaching out to the SSPX? Furthermore, how is it that Francis has not taken any canonical action towards him? The Archbishop is saying all the right things, but there is a problem here, and something seems off about this. What do you think, Father? Well, superficially, one might say that uh, Archbishop Vigano is way beyond the Society of St. Pius X in its understanding of the issues. Because while the Society of St. Pius X continues to try to uh, straddle the line and maintain good relations with Francis as much as possible and maintain some sort of veneer of acceptance in Rome, uh, Archbishop Vigano has severed them, right? Even to the point where he exposed Francis uh, as, as, as simply lying, outright lying about the, um, the, court, the Carrick affair and what Francis knew about it. And then going into hiding, saying that he feared being assassinated uh, for having told the truth about Francis. And then um, now uh, questioning whether Francis could even be the Pope because of his defective consent and his utterly, utter lack of faith and uh, the Catholic faith. So in a sense, Vigano has gone far beyond in the boldness of his assertions, you know, yeah. the, the gravity of the problem and, and who Francis is, the Pius X, they're still trying to, um, what should I say, um, uh, paint over or spin, you know, this. And um, the things that they can't spin, they kind of ignore or, or kind of gloss over coming from the Vatican, okay? Um, so that, that's what the, the price they have to pay to try to maintain, as I say, this, this veneer of, or this illusion of solidarity, yeah. you know, uh, with the Vatican. Um, but um, Archbishop Vigano is, is basically casting that off entirely, saying, look, this is the way it is. He's not a Catholic. He's not a member of the church. He can't be the Pope. This is what Fran now, Vigano is not saying that dogmatically. He's proposing this for discussion, right? And he's making a very bold statements about it, but he's not trying to say, my position is the only position you can, you're allowed to hold. Okay? He's saying, it is a position, it is my position, let's talk about it. Uh, which very few people seem to be willing to, willing to do. But in any case, um, that, that I say would be the superficial uh, answer, but there are those who point out that uh, Archbishop Vigano's contacts in the Novus Ordo are actually Opus Dei members and uh, rather prominent members of Opus Dei. 
and they warned that this is a this is a red flag. And uh, I don't know a great deal about it, but there are those who know quite a bit more than I, obviously. And they say that's the the fact that um, Archbishop Vigano's actually first contacts that he went to to talk about his intention to expose the truth about the uh, sexual abuse of children in the in the in the, in the New Order Church. Um, despite what Francis was trying to, to cover over with Theodore McCarrick, uh, that his contacts really were, and his primary, at least Italian promoters, are Opus Dei members. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think they would say that, you know, there's a reason why he's making these bold statements, as though it's to kind of bring together a certain segment of the population, you know, who would tend to agree with that position. <laughs> but then to kind of lead them down a, 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 to a dead end. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't see an awful lot of uh, a practical uh, results coming from Archbishop Vigano's warnings. You know, I, I do value his warnings. I value what he says. And I think what he's saying is actually spot on, right? Um, getting this seminary together, I don't know where that's going to lead. He was involved with canceled priests for a while, but that that has not gone well at all. And he's disassociated from them, and they've disassociated from him, and now they're disassociating from each other. You know? <laughs> so it's kind of uh, disintegrating, that whole canceled priest idea. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't know where this is going with him either. I... I if if the ultimate result is going to be uh, to create some kind of hybrid between the new order and the traditional, that would be the worst possible scenario that I can see, to try to marry modernism or some of the fruits of modernism with Catholicism. They are in, intrinsically um, mutually opposed. They They are totally incompatible, right? As Father Father Barbara Barber, who is associated with the Pius X group, said, "Well, you know, there are good aspects of modernism. Hmm. Well, there are no good aspects of modernism." And Pius X said, "It is the synthesis of all heresies. You can't have good aspects to something that is the synthesis of all heresies." Um, so, if they're going to ultimately try to create some kind of hybrid form of of life. <laughs> of faith, of religion, that is uh, going to try to marry uh, you know, Catholicism and modernism, that would truly be a spiritual Frankenstein monster. Mm. Uh, I don't know that um, Archbishop Vigano has that intent. I, I, I see, foresee it, it could go that way. I don't know what kind of seminarians he wants to bring on board or what kind of curriculum they're going to have and who's going to teach it. Um, so it would be really, really hard to endorse it uh, at, at, at this point. You know, one would just have to stand back and watch. Yeah. If uh, it is true that this is somehow being orchestrated behind the scenes by Opus Dei, then that would give us reason to uh, you know, have some very serious misgivings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the message basically comes down to us, stay the course. Just stay the course, do what we've been doing all this time. 
Because what he's proposing is simply what we've been doing all this time, right? Yeah. So there's no need to propose it if it's being done already, right? And um, just help the efforts that are already in place. Don't try to replace them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there are those who are practicing the traditional faith in its integrity, and uh, they should be obviously encouraged. Those who are not practicing the traditional faith in its integrity, but falsifying it, but by trying to cozy up with the modernists, they should not be encouraged, right? Um, they should be denounced, but denounced in such a way to try to uh, encourage them to, to see that they're making a mistake <laughs> and to, to practice the traditional faith in its entirety. Yeah. I, I think, though, Father, this viewer does raise an interesting uh, question when he, he talks about uh, about Francis not taking any action towards Vigano. And I think it is a bit interesting mm-hmm. when, uh, you know, I think when, when Vigano first made, sure. uh, when he first came out with, with these accusations, he said he went into hiding because he feared for his life. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, point, yeah. but, but still, I mean, it, it seems every other every week or so now that Vigano will come out with some kind of statement, um, some kind of message that seems to be getting more and more direct, more and more strong, more and more bold. And yet it seems that uh, as he goes that route that, that Francis, to my knowledge, has never really responded, never really replied to anything. And at the same time, look what Francis is doing to, to his other enemies. Strickland yeah. and Cardinal Burke. Mueller's and Cardinal uh, Burke. Burke and so on. I mean, look how he's treating them. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, Archbishop Vigano is just blasting away yeah. these cannon shots. And uh, Francis is basically just uh, ignoring this. It seems like it. Um, hasn't excommunicated him, as far as I know, right? Um, so that, that, is, that is very peculiar. Yeah. Um, I can't explain that either. Okay. I don't know anyone who can. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Um, okay, well, maybe, Father, I think we have time for a few uh, viewer questions on various uh, subjects. We could maybe get through some of these rather quickly. Uh, Father, this viewer says in 1 Corinthians 1.19, mm-hmm. it says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the prudence of the prudence I will reject. This viewer says, what does this mean when this passage refers to the wisdom of the wise and the prudence of the prudent? Well, as the uh, writer says, he's referring to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Actually, uh, St. Paul talks about this wisdom and prudence all the way through chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, I think going into chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. And uh, one has to realize St. Paul had preached the gospel there in the Acropolis in Athens. He saw the uh, pedestal with no no statue on it. The unknown God. The unknown God, right? And he said he would now reveal to them who that unknown God is, and he is the one true God. And he sent his Son into the world to be our Redeemer. And when he talked about the resurrection and the resurrection of the dead, they laughed at him. Okay? They thought this was just preposterous and impossible. Uh, now, there were some converts, notable converts, uh, but basically the, the rest just told St. Paul, don't call us, we'll call you. Um, so St. Paul actually left and kind of shook the dust off his feet, and he had a very bad impression of these philosophers of Athens, right, who knew how to split hairs, 
but didn't know how to recognize, you know, the truth that was given to them. And um, so he referred to that as worldly wisdom. And if you look in this first, uh, the first chapters of uh, his first letter to the Corinthians, you see St. Paul is, is blasting, in a sense, is denouncing this wisdom of the world, this smug and uh, fake wisdom of the world, which stands against the true wisdom of God. And he contrasts the wisdom of God with the so-called wisdom of the world. Okay. He contrasts the prudence, right, of the faith, the faithful, uh, against the prudence of the world. And there was a, a, an enormous difference between the two, clearly. Um, you know, those who start from the standpoint of the world and say, well, I have to live my life in this world according to this world's rules and principles, and that's what I have to do to get ahead, okay? So my, my life is for the world, of the world, in the world. And, uh, but our Lord said that we are to be in the world but not of the world. And so the wisdom that we have must come from faith, right? Not the worldly wisdom, but the wisdom that faith gives it, starting from, dairy, from supernatural principles that our Lord has given us and developing our understanding of what the human life should be according to the principles of our faith, that we are basically here, we are creatures placed here by God, created in His image, to know him and to love him and to serve him in this world so as to be happy with him in eternity, in the next world. Uh, that is not worldly wisdom. That's precisely the faith that the philosophers of the Acropolis laughed at and, and, and despised and rejected, right? So uh, this is the point. This is the point of St. Paul in the opening of his first letter to the Corinthians. The Corinthians, this great Greek city. Again, a city very much, uh, you might say, in the orbit of Athens and its philosophers and all the rest. And uh, St. Paul's message to the faithful there in Corinth is despise the world is. The, the, the wisdom of this world, mm -hmm. which is opposed in its arrogance to the wisdom of God. Very good. Okay, next question. Father's viewer says, my daughter and son-in-law are, are Protestants and they have a six-year-old daughter who doesn't understand why grandpa cannot go to her church. Any suggestions, Father, on how to explain it to her why I cannot go to her Protestant church with her? Well, she is a six-year-old child. You know, it's not so easy to explain, but she should understand certain things. She understands that... Um, uh, grandpa, who's a Catholic, right, cannot go to her church. And I, you know, uh, I mean, this is uh, the grandma trying to explain this, right? Grandpa. Right. No, but this is, my my daughter and son-in-law are Protestant, and they have a six-year-old daughter. Oh, I uh, I th I just got the impression from the wording that this was grandma who had this problem to explain to the daughter, that grandpa has to explain grandpa. it himself. Yes. Why grandpa? Yes. So he's referring to himself in the yes. third person. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. Can't go to her church. Yes. Well, if grandpa's going to explain this to her, he has to understand he might be putting himself at odds with her parents 
and they might not appreciate it. And they might actually not uh, give their daughter access to their grandfather, right? He's got to realize that uh, if he really does explain it to her well, um, so that she understands it, her parents might well object, okay? I presume grandpa's aware of that, right? But she's asking, and I think he just has to answer the question. Uh, um, he could say, well, go talk to your mommy and daddy. They'll explain it to you. I'm not so sure that's the answer that grandpa wants her to get, though, right? So ultimately, he's going to have to at some point, when she's six or when she's 16, he's going to have to explain, look, the Catholic faith is the true faith. That's the faith that I have. That's the faith that Jesus Christ taught me. That's the faith that Jesus Christ taught us to have. Okay? And uh, that's not the faith that they're teaching at your church. Okay? They belong to a group called the Protestants who broke away from the Catholic Church because they didn't like the way the Catholic Church or certain Catholics were behaving. And so they decided to start a different church with different teachings, but those are not the teachings that Jesus taught. So as a Catholic, I'm following the teachings that Jesus actually taught, and I'm doing the things that Jesus actually told us to do. We go to Mass, and uh, you could even maybe tell her a little bit about the Mass there. Now, I don't know if she has ever been to church with him. He's talking about why Grandpa cannot go to her church. He says nothing about whether Mom and Dad and the six-year-old granddaughter have been to his church, maybe. And um, I assume that he's a traditional Catholic, so I assume it would have been a traditional Mass if they had gone. Uh, but perhaps this would be an opportunity to say, you know, if you, if you were to come to my church, you'd see it's very different from your church, right? And so since I don't believe the things that you, which your church is teaching, I can't go there and pretend that it's perfectly okay and that I belong there. Because I don't, you know. Oh. Um, but, uh, you know, he might even say, I'd, I'd love to talk to your mommy and daddy with you and sit down and talk about what I believe as a Catholic yeah. and maybe open that door there. But uh, again, uh, when the little girl goes back to her mom and dad and starts asking questions, say, I just talked to Grandpa, and he told me this, that, and the other thing. And he said, the church we go to is not the true church. And uh, they're not really teaching what Jesus taught. Yeah. Um, he's probably going to get an angry phone call. Uh, at least. Right? But since she's asking, I, I think he, he owes her some explanation. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right, Father, uh, could you please talk about the rapture? It's something I keep hearing about a lot lately. Where did it come from? says, I've heard the government is leaking UFO records so that when people get raptured, the government will blame it on UFOs. Do Catholics believe in the rapture, Father? Well, this is rather interesting, right? So when people get raptured, the government will say, oh, they were taken by space aliens and spaceships that are taken away. So the government actually believes and is preparing for the rapture I guess in so. this way. Okay. Well, that's interesting. And, um, but what about those who actually believe in the UFOs? Say, well, when we snatch these people, we're just going to blame it on the rapture. 
So it could actually work both ways, right? Hey, it could serve you know, both, both purposes here. Uh, the fact is that um, the rapture is a, is a myth, okay, as it is proposed. The, the idea that before the Great Tribulation, um, God is going to uh, take away all the good people from the earth and take them to a safe place where they won't have to undergo the Tribulation of the last days or whatever, right? The Great Chastisement. That... Is, is something, is an idea that we can actually trace back historically uh, no farther than like 1830, right? the early 1800s. Uh, Cotton Mather and his group came up with the, this idea. And it's basically a, a misinterpretation of uh, St. Paul's uh, letter to, first, I, is it 1 Thessalonians? Or, I think it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, where, you know, same, well, I think we actually read of that, read that at the Requiem Mass, the funeral Mass, right? Um, about those who are left will be taken up in the air with Christ, and so we shall always eat together with the Lord. And they interpret that to mean a, a rapture, and they've spun that now to have a whole mythology surrounding it. I think, uh, What's the name of the books? The Hay, uh, like Hay books uh, came out. Um, yeah. Um, drawing a blank, but I. No, not gone saying. with the wind. What is that? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but you know, the whole series, right? Yeah. Based upon this idea of the rapture. Uh, again, it's, it's a theological myth uh, that basically it, was, it had no part in a Christian belief, Catholic belief. Yeah. Uh, prior to the year 1800, okay? It was unknown until then. And it was just somebody's latter-day idea. So um, there, is, there is no reality to this, to this rapture. Um, if you read the rest of the scripture, you can see that the good are not taken away from the world before the chastisement, uh, that the good are here on the earth also. And... Uh, um, dealing with the Antichrist and all the rest, right? Mm. So, um, so anyway, that's, it's, it's not true. But as far as the government um, like preparing an explanation for the rapture, why all the good people are suddenly gone, that the space aliens came and collected all the good people and took them to planet, you know, Zircon or whatever, uh, Niburu or whatever, uh, that's a, a complete uh, fabrication, right? There's no such thing. Now, I'm not saying that the government isn't working on some kind of UFO program as part of its great deception. I'm not saying that. I mean, Satan could, could easily do that. He's a great showman, right? And uh, we, we see our Lord says that the Antichrist will come working signs and wonders so as to deceive even the elect, right? Were that possible? And St. Paul talks about that, 2 Thessalonians. Um, so we know that there will be great signs and wonders, and they will be very convincing to those who don't love the truth. And uh, so um, they, they could well be working on some kind of... I mean, I, I could just see the government working on some kind of a UFO project here and then try to explain why all these good people are disappearing 
into the bowels of federal prisons as though they've been, you know, the, the FBI agents who show up at four o'clock in the morning with their stun grenades and all that, blasting them, actually took them, uh, took them to heaven. Maybe, maybe these are the, the angels coming to collect the good people and take them away. I don't know what is, is being, uh, what stories are being concocted in the halls of the DOJ, the FBI, and all that. No idea. But regardless, the fact is that the, the rapture itself is not a, a Christian concept. Okay. It's, it's certainly not a Catholic concept. Yeah. All right, um, maybe one last email, if you have okay. Father. Um, okay. This one's a little bit longer, so I'll just uh, read, read the text here. This viewer says, uh, Father Jenkins has spoken on many previous occasions about the importance of sacrifice and mortification to the spiritual life of a traditional Catholic, but usually the emphasis has fallen on the mortification of the flesh through fasting and the like. He says many of the masters of the spiritual life when discussing mortification also touch upon quote-unquote, spiritual mortifications, such as the practice of detachment from one's own opinions. For example, some recommend that when a lawful superior contradicts our own position in a matter of free opinion, we ought to favor our superior's judgment above our own. He says, in discussions with other Catholic laymen, I notice that it is very difficult for any of us to remain aloof from vain and uncertain cares, and I'm afraid that our negligence in this part of the interior life has been giving rise to bitter and scandalous controversies. Father, please say a few words about the importance of spiritual mortification to the layman and perhaps offer some advice toward improving it. Well, the fact is that uh, the external mortifications have as their purpose to develop and aid in developing the internal mortifications. I mean, uh, the mortification of the flesh would serve little purpose if it did not give us a greater character and greater interior strength, for example, in terms of um, mortification of the imagination and uh, mortification of uh, speech, in other words, um, mortification means basically we're putting to death the evil tendencies and we are trying to grow in virtue. So we have uh, we call custody of the eyes and custody of the imagination. Custody of the imagination means you have control over what your imagination, what, what, what the images and, and things going through your imagination. The devil actually can get into our imagination. He can influence our imagination. He can put ideas and images into our imagination. We go through the world we also find in the world images and so on that get into our imagination and entertain and so on. And these images can be very bad. And we also have the flesh itself and the weakness of the flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil can actually work on our imagination and fill our imagination, pull all kinds of lascivious and indecent ideas. And so we need to cultivate a control of the imagination or a custody of the imagination so that we can actually command what we are allowing ourselves to think, what we're allowing ourselves to see in the interior, the mind's eye of the imagination, and rejecting the things that are offensive to God, right? All sinful ideas. And, uh, you know, people think about daydreaming. Well, daydreaming is really, you might say, the work of the imagination, right? We just let the imagination kind of run wild. 
and the imagination in the daydreaming can run some, into some very, very foul and very sinful ways, okay? But the person who has custody of the imagination, has custody of it, actually has certain dominion over and control over his imagination, and he recognizes what's happening, and he says, no, this is wrong. I will not do that. I will not think of this. I will not dwell on this idea. I will redirect my attention to something else. Okay, because this is wrong, and this is offensive to God. This idea is offensive to God. Somebody, there's imagination and the memory, working from the memory, might um, recall a grudge he has against somebody who wronged him, and then his imagination starts fabricating all these ideas about how to get back at him, right? And he, then he says, wait a minute, this is wrong. This is offensive to God that my, I'm using my imagination to think about all the creative ways that I could strike back. What could I say? What could I do to get even with this person? And if the person has the custody of the imagination, he realizes this is wrong. My conscience tells me it is wrong to think of these things with uh, reckless abandon, even with a certain enjoyment, and I'm going to stop it. I'm not going to let my mind go this way. I'm going to turn my imagination, my attention to other things that are right and good. So that custody of the imagination is very, very important for anyone who wants to save his soul, because he's basically wresting control of his imagination back from the devil, who's trying to gain that control. Father, really quickly, isn't this custody of the imagination you're describing, isn't that the exact opposite of what you just read in the, the description of neo-paganism? Didn't it refer oh. to imagination as the first among equals or something and said that we should, oh. we should give place to yeah, imagination? Right. Exactly. Like exactly. It's exactly the point. Exact opposite. You, you saw that. Yeah. That's very interesting that you picked up on that. By saying imagination really is, uh, should be above the will and above the intelligence. It's your imagination that is the key, right? Um, but the imagination itself is not irrational. It, it, is not, it is not oriented to truth or goodness, right? They consider it to be the creative power. But the creative, well, look at the modern art. Look at what they consider to be modern artistry. And it's very foul, right? Yeah. Um, so the idea of the imagination cut loose from intelligence, cut loose from uh, truth and goodness, cut loose from faith, this is what the human imagination does. It goes wild, becomes a creature of hell, right? And turns the world into another hell, too. And that's, uh, yeah, exactly, Tom. The, the neo-pagans consider that to be the highest faculty, um, that should be supreme over all. Um, but as Christians, we know, as, true, as Catholics, true Christians, we know that we have to gain control over what we allow ourselves to look at, both by the eyes, you know, of looking at the world around us, but by the interior eye of the imagination. We need to gain that control. The external mortifications of fasting and just whatever, you know, discomfort we are willing to, uh, to offer up to God, um, those external mortifications are actually meant to increase the power of the will for good and gaining control over our lower, lower faculties so that the lower faculties do not dominate our intelligence and our will, but rather 
the uh, even as even as they said, you know, the, the Judeo-Christian idea is that the will must uh, command the lower faculties, the will guided by the intelligence, right, of truth, and that the will and the intellect, having exp uh, imposed dominion over the lower faculties, the will and the intellect must then be submissive to God, right, subject to God. That is the Judeo-Christian idea. That is exactly what the neo-pagans reject. Um, and this is why what Francis is proposing is so awful. And so, well, I mean, if, if you believe that modernism is a synthesis of all heresies, and that the modernist concept of faith is at the root of neo-paganism. You would expect that neo-paganism would be the religion that is like the anti-religion, yeah. the exact opposite of Catholicism, and that is to deify the imagination yeah. rather than have the intellect and will. The, the imagination is subject to the intelligence and the will, and the intelligence and the will subject to God, right? Uh, who is not part of nature, who is the creator of nature, right? Uh, this is like the, the antithesis of Catholicism. Um, so uh, anyway, when our writer uh, says, you know, we, we need to concentrate on the internal disciplines and the internal um, mortifications, he's right. And the external mortifications have to give power to the, the higher faculties that are motivated by faith, hope, and love to gain that control um, so that the faculties of our, notably, notably our imagination, uh, uh, can be corralled, directed, and uh, serve, right? Serve God rather than uh, be self-serving and uh, basically become kind of a pagan deity. Yeah. as it is with neo-paganism. Wow. Well, perhaps we can uh, end with that, Father. I think we got through a lot tonight, but thanks yeah. for uh, all of your time. Thanks for everything that you do, and very blessed uh, rest of the Advent season to you, Father. Well, Tommy, wish you the same. Uh, it's a beautiful season of the year, heaven knows. We see John the Baptist. The Church proposes him and his voice, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. We can relate to that today, can't we? <laughs> a little bit. But the voice is very much still there, right? We have to be part of that voice by what we do and say. We have to be like St. John the Baptist. Um, he spoke truth to power, okay, truly, that back then. But, you know, something, John the Baptist denounced Herod, King Herod's, uh, uh, his uh, adultery. Herod took his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. And you know that John the Baptist was the powerful voice that spoke up in uh, condemning that scandal, because it was a great scandal back then. Everyone was scandaled. Everyone uh, scandalized. Everyone knew you can't do that. That's wrong, right? Even for a king to do that, it's wrong. And it tells you where we are today, because if a statesman were to do that today, take his brother's wife, I don't know that anybody would really bat an eye. That's how corrupt we are today, compared to even how they were in Herod's time, right? John the Baptist paid with his life, and you know how, right? 
uh, Herodias's daughter danced, and the king swore to give her half his kingdom. All she wanted, all Herodias wanted, was John the Baptist's head on a plate. She got it. But John the Baptist was more than willing to give that because he had accomplished his mission. He gathered the repentant souls of Judea and then he directed them to the one who could give them a baptism, not only of repentance, but a baptism of forgiveness. He could actually forgive their sins, right? Who had come to do just that, to redeem them. So that was John the Baptist's mission. And it was what his whole life was about and what his death was about. He died defending the integrity of the marriage bond. Okay? So he, a man who was never married, is actually the great hero, right, of the integrity of the marriage bond. And that's, that's how he gave his life. So uh, beautiful testimony. St. John the Baptist, we need to take it to heart. And we need to follow the example and not be reeds shaken by the wind and not be men clothed in soft garments. That's an interesting relationship. You know, last Sunday's epistle and gospel, actually, uh, referred to Isaiah, right? Prophecies of the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Christ was born. And when our Lord gave the sign, go and tell John what you see and hear, and he mentions after the emissaries of John had left to go back to tell him, by the way, the messages, the signs that our Lord gave were all from Isaiah's prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. So our Lord repeated those prophecies of Isaiah and told uh, John the Baptist's emissaries to go back and tell him that they were being fulfilled. But he, then our Lord turned to those who were actually following him. They had been John's Baptist, uh, followers. They followed the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world when uh, John the Baptist pointed him out to them. Now they were with our Lord. And he asked them, Whom did you go out into the desert to see? No reed shaken by the wind. Did you go out to see a man clothed in soft garments? No. They were in the palaces of kings, like Herod. This was a kind of making a statement, actually. Because men clothed in soft garments, what, what does that conjure up as an image of a man? What kind of a man is clothed in soft garments, so to speak? An effeminate, an effeminate man, right? And again, there too, you see this reference, this veiled reference to the prophet Isaiah, that those who reject God and defy God will be ruled by the effeminate and by children. They will be governed by the effeminate and children. So when our Lord talks about these men clothed in soft garments, not only refers to the court of Herod, but he, he refers to those who defy God and how they will be ruled. We shouldn't be surprised to see those words fulfilled even in our own day for those who absolutely will not submit to the true God. But uh, anyway, Tom, we have our work cut out for us, and it's a work of the faith. And it's a work of labor, a labor of love for our Lord. I have to be, uh, uh, follow the example of John the Baptist at this time. Absolutely. Thank you, Father. God bless you. Yeah. Thank you to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. 
Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.